Well, it's good to be with you once again. We are obviously continuing in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we have been focused on chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, where the Apostle Paul uh, gave a scriptural defense and definition uh, of or for the sacraments, namely the Lord's Supper or what we call communion. We learned that, or we've been learning that when the Corinthians gathered for communion, uh, there were wealthy believers in that body uh, who were causing divisions and discrimination against the poor believers, and they were consuming all of the bread and wine, in particular the wine, and even getting drunk. And on the 14th of uh, last month, we looked at the first main point where Paul excoriated the Corinthians for abusing communion. We looked at that in verses 17 to 22. And then last Sunday, we looked at the second main point where Paul educated the Corinthians on communion. He gave them kind of an elementary, elementary school level teaching on the sacrament, or what I was calling the ABCs, and that was in verses 23 to 27. Now this morning we will look at the third and final main point of that whole section, and we'll go ahead and wrap up the section. If you could, just take your Bibles and turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as usual, I'd like to, to pray before we actually get to work. Father, we humble ourselves yet again as we are about to engage your word. And um, your word is where the power is. Your word is where transformation is. Your word is the, the vehicle or tool the Holy Spirit uses to conform our lives to Christ. And so we just humbly acknowledge our weakness and your strength and ask that you make your word presentable to us, understandable to us, applicable to us, and through the spirit livable for us. Teach us about this final component from Paul in this section on communion and begin to prepare our hearts as we are about to celebrate that sacrament ourselves. So, uh, Lord, we uh, give you permission, not that you need it, but we give you permission to, to not only speak into our lives, but to give commands and to direct and lead us. That's part of our humble response to you. And so we love you as our Father, and uh, we yield to you now and desire for you to have your way with our lives. And uh, just teach us from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can pick up where we left off last Sunday. And look at that third main point. Number three, this is the third E too, by the way, because you know how I am. I've got to do everything in matching letters, numbers or uh, letters and all that. But Paul exhorts the Corinthians to obey the following instructions before they actually participate in the Lord's table. And we see this in the remaining portion of chapter 11 in verses 28 to 34. As you can see on the slides, you got the first point, the second point, and now we're looking at that third point. Back in verse 27, in the previous section, Paul spent some time describing the peril of communion. You know, he talks about taking the bread and cup in an unworthy manner, uh, profaning the, the body and blood of Christ. That's what it means. 
And now in the last two paragraphs of chapter 11, his phenomenal section on communion, verses 28 to 34, he's essentially giving instructions for how to avoid the peril of communion. He describes its seriousness and its sanctity, but he didn't really give any exhortations on how to, you know, avoid the peril. And so that's what he does in the remaining part of the text. It makes total sense. He gives instructions for how to avoid the peril of communion. And what he does is he describes five things the Corinthians and all Christians must do to maintain the sanctity of the sacrament as well as maintaining the safety of those who participate in it. As we talked about last week, how it can be dangerous if you do it wrong and if you enter into it with the wrong motive and if you handle it wrongly, you can be as the Corinthians were. Some were getting weakened and sickened and even dying because of how they were abusing communion. And so he gives five instructions for how to avoid the peril and the judgment that comes with that. And I think this is probably... Of the three main points and sections to this text in chapter 11, this is probably the most practical. And it's really um, kind of like, as Jared would say, putting handles on some challenging truths so we know what to do with it. Because God doesn't want us to just hear the truth. He wants us to know what to do with it. How do we, we know that communion is serious, but how do we execute it in a serious manner? That's God's intent here is to show us and teach us how through Paul. And so there are five things that Corinthians and all Christians must do to maintain the sanctity and safety of those who participate. Let's begin with the first instruction. The first instruction is A, examine yourselves, verse 28. Very simple. Examine yourselves. As you approach the Lord's Supper table, examine yourselves. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What he's saying is let a person examine their self before they drink of the cup and eat of the bread. That's what he's saying. Examine yourself beforehand. Before we partake of the bread, before we partake of the cup, drink the cup, we are to give ourselves a thorough self-examination, looking honestly at our hearts for anything that should not be there and sifting out any and all evil. Our motives, our attitudes toward the Lord and his word, toward his people and toward communion and the communion service itself, all of these things should come under private scrutiny right there before the Lord, before we even participate. And what makes this really cool when Paul says, examine yourselves, it, it makes the Lord's table a special place for purifying the church. Communion itself becomes that because requisite to it is self-examination. If you're going to enter into this celebration and remembrance and all that it entails, you are to self-examine. It forces you to have to get transparent and real with yourself. You can't just say, well, I've got some sins or whatever and treat it haphazardly. You have to literally call upon the Holy Spirit who is in you if you're a believer to expose whatever sin, whatever tendencies, whatever it is that you need to confess and repent of. It could be an attitude. It could be something that you have with somebody else. It could be any number of things, whatever it is. It could be what you did on the way here this morning when you got mad at the guy that was doing 21 miles an hour on McHenry or for kicking the dog. It could be anything, any kind of sin. 
It is to take an, a mental spiritual inventory of yourself in that moment. A serious inventory. And I like the fact that communion, because if we want to be involved in it, which we are commanded to be involved in it, we have to self-examine before we do it. We got to get real. We can't just keep pushing sin aside, pretending like it isn't all that serious or that it doesn't exist or minimizing it in comparison to others' more grievous sins. Communion is a call to be transparent and to get real. It, and it is not just that in that moment. It is a template for Christian living. Because we only take communion once a month at this church. So this is, we do that only once a month. You should do this every day. Communion reminds us to be transparent every day and to be confessional every day. I mean, God has wired into this thing called the Christian faith communion as a stopgap or something that forces us to get really, really transparent and serious about sin. Because we know the consequence if we enter into it without doing that. Weakness, sickness, death, whatever it is the Corinthians were exhibiting, why wouldn't we exhibit anything less? So I love the fact that communion is something that's there to remind us to be confessional and to be transparent, not to just hide our sins. It is a special place for purifying the church, and we must ask ourselves maybe the following critical questions. You could add your own. Uh, these are some that I came up with. Firstly, do I have a proper biblical theology of communion? You know, in the self-examination, it's okay to self-examine your theology, your beliefs about communion. What do I believe about communion? What do I understand about communion? First and foremost, do I even understand what it is? Do I understand that it doesn't save me? That the blood of Christ saves me? Do I understand that I must take it seriously? I must confess my sin before I engage in it? Do I understand that transubstantiation is superstition, Roman Catholic style? Do I understand that Christ is not in the literal bread and juice or wine? That these are symbols of his work? Do I have a right biblical theology of communion? Because I think that when Paul says self-examine, if you were to self-examine and find that you don't have a right theology of it, you better stay away from it altogether or correct your theology. Because if you enter into it with wrong beliefs, how can you do something right like communion if you have wrong beliefs about it? You're going to practice the wrong beliefs during it, and now you're in trouble. Do I have a proper theology of communion? Maybe what is the meaning of the sacrament? What is the meaning of communion? The symbolism, its symbolism, its remembrance of the work of Christ, its remembrance that he's coming back, it, the things that Paul talks about in the previous section. Maybe why does the church actually commemorate or celebrate it? Why do we do that? That's not a bad, I mean, these are things that we should know and understand. Most importantly, why am I about to celebrate communion? Why am I about to get up and walk over to those tables and get that bread and that juice or sit there and take them from an elder. Why am I doing this? Am I doing it because I don't want to be, I, I really don't understand what it is, but I don't want to be left out. Everyone else is doing it, so I must do it. Why am I doing it? What is my motivation behind it? These are all part of the self-examination process. Theology, motivation, understanding, intent. 
Because I think what happens is we do it so frequently, and we used to do it every weekend here, and my fear was that it would just become mundane. We can just do it out of, out of pure ritual, and that is not why we do this. If we do it out of it just ritualistically, then we're going to fall under condemnation. It's much more serious than a ritual. We might ask ourselves, am I participating in this because I literally trust in Christ alone for my salvation? I bet in the history of the church, there have been, like the whole history of roughly 2,000 years, there's probably been just as many unbelievers who have participated than believers. Because it's done in a public setting. Well, first century, usually done in home churches. There weren't a lot of outsiders coming in. But for the most part, whenever the church went really public into public buildings, which was much later, I, how many unbelievers have participated in it because they were part of a congregation that morning? A friend invited them and they just went ahead and did it. How many times has that happened? You probably can't count them. According to Abraham, it'd be more times than there are sand on the seashore or stars in the sky. In every one of those instances, that person brings judgment on themselves. Because it's only for those who are trusting in Christ. The symbols represent his work and you're trusting in his work. You take the symbols because you understand and believe in his work. Because you're a person of faith. You know what the Bible says about Christ. You believe what the Bible says about Christ. And you are trusting in the work of Christ. That's what faith is, by the way. It's those three things. You have real faith. And that faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8. Am I really trusting in Christ here? It, it, does my life bear the fruits of this kind of trust? Because there's a whole lot of people these days that say they're trusting in Christ and they have absolutely no fruit, which means they have no root. Is, is my testimony about Christ simply in word or is it manifested in deed as well? Because James says in James 2, 17 that Real faith comes with works. Faith that doesn't have the works is dead faith. So it's not just a matter of believing in Christ. It means trusting in Christ. And the one who trusts has a lifestyle that affirms that trust. It's not perfect, but it is Christ-like. Why, why am I doing communion this morning? Is it... Another question to ask, is it because I love the Lord and enjoy fellowship with him? That's a good question to ask yourself. Is it because I desire to be spiritually nourished by him? Because that's the symbolism too in the participation of the bread and the cup. He is nourishing us spiritually or at least those are the symbols of the nourishment that you can only find in his work. He's the living water. He's the bread of heaven, right? You know the symbolism he uses in John. Do I, 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 just coming to mind right now, there's a passage in one of the gospels where it says, Jesus says to his disciples on the night that he established the Lord's Supper, he says, I have eagerly anticipated doing this with you. Do we enter into this time with eager anticipation? Likened to the Lord? Or is it just ritual? Or is it just something we do? Is it just part of our liturgy? Wasn't that long ago when I heard a group of godly men lay out a whole church service and plan a whole Sunday and Saturday. They had a couple services they were planning and laid them all out and had everything down to the minute. I mean, literally at 
9.47, Josie will come up and do announcements. I mean, it was just, I was like, that's crippling. But I mean, they had everything laid out and then at the end of two and a half hours of planning, and I had nothing to do with that process, I was just being subjected to it and I was saying, Lord, deliver me. Because listening to them talk about songs and everything else, I was like, I've got a ministry to lead. Can I get out of here? But I'm listening, and at the end of this whole process of planning for this weekend service, everything reflecting the sermon and the text and everything, all of a sudden somebody blurts out, oh, no, it's Communion Sunday. We've got to figure out how to get that in there. Is it just part of our liturgy, just another thing that we do? Or do we eagerly anticipate this moment at the Lord's supper table with him and his people being nourished by him, by his pure, unadulterated, unrestricted grace. It can become the opposite of everything I'm saying we should examine. It can be ritual. It can be just another thing we, we can do. It can be another eight minute moment in our liturgy, our Sunday liturgy. Why are we doing this? Another thing we can ask as we self-examine, am I harboring any anger or animosity in my heart? Do I have ill feelings toward my spouse or my child or toward somebody in the congregation? Maybe somebody did you wrong and you know, you're having a real hard time with that and it's not restricting you from giving a toast to the Lord though. Is my heart filled with something that shouldn't be there, or is it full of love for God, love for others, especially my brothers and sisters in Christ? Ask yourself, what sins are in my life right now? What, where, where, where am I weakened, and where am I sinning, and where do I, what sins am I repeating? What sins do I need to confess? What behaviors do I need to repent of? These, these are all legitimate self-examination questions that should be asked. A thorough self-examination paired with confession and repentance shows that, that we as God's people not only take sin seriously, but that we also take communion seriously. And then in the ultimate sense that we take our relationship with God seriously. That loving and pleasing God is our top priority. And there have been times where, um, sadly, I have abstained from communion because of maybe a particular sin or maybe I have a strained relationship with somebody in the church or somewhere else, whatever. I mean, there's just been times where I've, you know, just sat quietly and let the elements either pass by or I didn't get up and go get them. And I, my thinking in this moment, and you need to pay attention very carefully because some of you have done this too, but my thinking in this moment is that, well, I know Paul's warnings in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. I need to take them seriously. And I'm not in the kind of condition where I can participate because I will end up defiling communion because of my attitude or because of the problem or the sin I have in my life or the problem I have with my wife or somebody else. And I'll just, I'll just stay away from those things because in my mind, that will just complicate the matter more or make, put me and place me potentially in greater harm or danger. 
I mean, based on Paul's warnings here in chapter 11, that seems very wise and sensible, amen? But was that move wise? You see, what I began to realize last week was that abstaining from communion did not change the fact that I had sin in my life. You know, the sin doesn't go away because you abstain from communion. The sin is still there. I may have avoided taking the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner, but I was still living an unworthy life because I was harboring sin. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? I think it's a trick of the devil to get us out of communion while hanging on to sin. And then he tricks us into thinking that we're in a better place spiritually because we abstained. If we have sin in our life, and now I would admit, taking communion while you have active, ongoing, unrepentant sin in your life, unconfessed sin, that's a very dangerous thing. But having sin in your life at all is a dangerous thing because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23, sin kills always. You see, I abstain to avoid furthering my trouble, to avoid taking communion in an unworthy manner, but I still had an unworthy life. And what God has called me to do in Ephesians 4.1 is live a life worthy of the calling I have received. And I don't think that what Paul is saying there on behalf of the Lord is live a perfect life. He knows that's not possible. But the worthy life is a life that is fixed on Christ and aiming to please him and living confessionally and living repentantly and those sorts of things. It's not perfection, but it's progress. You see, instead of seeing communion as a loving and merciful invitation from God to deal with my sin, I began to see it as something that could make my situation worse. This means of grace, this beautiful means of grace, and by the way, there aren't many of them. There's just a handful, and one of them, and I think it's one of the top ones here in communion, this beautiful means of grace became to me a danger, and so I abstained, foolishly thinking that I had averted danger while having sin in my life. Somehow in those moments, I was forgetting that all sin is dangerous. Even the sins that were preventing me from celebrating communion. <laughs> and I realized I wasn't any safer. But thanks to God's grace, my view of communion has been morphing and changing and becoming more biblical. I now... I, I, I'm now seeing it not merely as dangerous because I think that it is still dangerous for those who abuse it, but now I see it as a gracious invitation to confess my sin and then to do the other things that Paul exhorts us to do in the previous section, to remember the work of Christ and remember his return and these sorts of things. It is an opportunity for me to hit pause and to reflect deeply and allow the Holy Spirit to search me out and to confess and repent of sin. That's the kind of invitation that it is. It's not something that's supposed to deter me and throw me in a different direction or to aid me and abet, you know, it be aiding and abetting and keeping sin in my life. I hope you understand what I'm saying. 
we have literally deliberately abstained because we have sin in our lives. We're not supposed to have sin in our lives. That's the point. Communion reminds us of this. It's such a gracious opportunity. You just stop and think about it, man. You're, you're, you're coming up to the Lord's table. You're taking in your hands elements that reflect the forgiveness of the very sin you're clinging to in that moment. What are we doing here? Oh, I can't take it because I've got sin in my life. Confess your sin. Run from your sin. As Owen says, kill your sin. Communion says, do that because the Lord is saying, I want you to come to my supper table. I don't want you to stay in sin and sit over there by yourself, sulking in your sin. Come to my table and participate. How hard is it to confess some sin? For some of us, it's very, very hard because the sin is tied to someone that hurt us. We're no more justified in that kind of sin. Like I'm talking about the sin of us hanging on to unforgiveness and holding a grudge against someone. Should we participate in communion while having that kind of sin in our life? Are you kidding me? No way. But the Lord extends this invitation. Reconcile to your brother or sister and then come freely to my table without any fear. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. What did sin leave? A crimson stain. But what did he do? He washed it white as snow. Don't cling to sin and reject communion. Confess your sin and celebrate communion. That's the right thing to do. So that's the first instruction, right? Self-examine. Find out what's there and put it before the Lord. B, discern the body, verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Here's another warning. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. There's that crazy, scary text. If a person refuses or fails to self-examine and make sure that they are ready for the Lord's Supper, they might eat and drink without discerning the body and bring judgment on themselves. Now, there's some controversy concerning Paul's use of the Greek word soma, or we see it as body in English. Some say Paul was referring to Christ's body, which fits with the words of the Lord's Supper in which Christ identifies the bread as his body. According to this view, taking the symbols while being ignorant of their meaning will incur judgment. And I would say, hallelujah, amen. If you're sitting here taking the bread and juice and have no concept of what they represent or mean, you're bringing judgment on yourself. You're just eating bread and juice, drinking wine, whatever it is the church serves. You're just taking it like it was if it were anything else, like any other food, like any other meal. And that's what the Corinthians were doing, right? They turned communion into just some kind of a dinner party, brought judgment on themselves. You must know what they represent. You must reflect on what they symbolize. And so 
Some say that's the meaning here of the word body. It's like Christ's literal body. You need to understand what these things represent. And I would say this is absolutely, absolutely true in those who hold this perspective, but I don't think that it grabs the whole meaning of what Paul is saying. There are some who take Paul's warning here in the word body and all the rest of it sacramentally, not the city, but as a sacrament, as if the believers should realize that the bread has now become the body of Christ. They say that the Apostle Paul was promoting the doctrine of transubstantiation here, the magical conversion of the elements into the literal body and blood of Christ. If the partaker fails to recognize this mystical, magical transubstantiation or transformation, he doesn't recognize that he's really eating the body and blood of Christ, which is really bizarre. If he doesn't realize that, then he's bringing judgment on himself. In other words, if he doesn't do communion Roman Catholic style, he's bringing judgment on himself. This view, however, is completely unsupported by the text or the context. It is yet, as I like to say, another example of adventures and missing the point. Paul was primarily concerned with the Corinthians' behavior toward one another, verses 18 to 22, not with whether or not they understood Roman Catholic dogma. Doesn't have anything to do with transubstantiation. So some have a view that this is like Christ's body and you need to understand what the elements represent. Some say it is literally his body, and if you don't acknowledge that, you're going to be in big trouble. And lastly, some think that Paul, when he says soma, or body, was referring to the church body, the body of Christ on earth. They say that the wealthy members had failed to discern the church body they were part of. They showed no concern for their fellow brothers and sisters, nor did they recognize and meet their brothers' and sisters' needs. In fact, they had even humiliated the poor by relegating them to second-class status. Ah, you're just the poor. You go over there and do your own thing. Us wealthy people will do our version of communion with all the food and wine, and we'll, we'll party over here while you guys don't have anything over there. And this is why the culprits drank judgment unto themselves and suffered weakness, illness, and death. Verse 30, this is one perspective, and I think that this interpretation fits the context best. When Paul wrote soma, or body, he was referring to the body of Christ, more specifically the church body at Corinth. He is saying that when believers eat and drink without discerning, without understanding, without studying, without being aware of, and not only being aware of, but intentionally meeting the needs of that whole body, if they fail to do that, if they just have the blinders on and it's all about me and my little click over here or just about me and this is all that matters, they don't care about what's going on with others in the congregation. If that's the attitude they have, Paul is saying they are the ones who drink judgment on themselves. So it's really a twofold deal. Self-examination, like making sure I understand what I'm doing, I'm in the right place to do this, and making sure that the body around me is okay. That we don't have somebody in our congregation that's hungry and hasn't had a meal because they're broke. Discerning 
knowing what's going on with the rest of the body, being cognizant of others' needs. That's what Paul is saying. You don't have any concept of what's going on with others in your congregation. You're just detached and disconnected. And you just proceed while there's needs that are unmet and people that are hurting and need prayer and these sorts of things. You're just drinking judgment on yourself. And I would, I would think that the same people that, that do that are probably those who don't self-examine. Because if they self-examine, they probably realize they haven't been serving and maybe meeting needs. You know, the Army Rangers have a great motto, no man left behind, ever. Even soldiers who were killed on the battlefield, that's really who they're talking about. They're not talking about just a, a POW or someone who's wounded. They're talking about even if a, 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 a platoon or a couple of guys in a platoon get blown up by an RPG or something, once they get an opportunity to remove those dead American soldiers from the battlefield, they'll remove them off the battlefield and they'll take them back to America with them or send them back. They're not leaving any American blood or bodies on foreign soil anywhere. No man left behind. To leave a fellow ranger on the battlefield is a disgrace to him, it's a disgrace to his family, and it's a disgrace to the nation he just died for. And to leave a fellow believer out of communion is to disgrace him, his church body, and Christ who died for him. This is the point that Paul is driving at in verse 29. No one should be left out of this thing, especially when it comes to a lack of provision or some hoarding up all the stuff like the Corinthians were doing. Now this, we, we need to incorporate those who do not believe in that moment. They're genuine brothers and sisters. Their needs are met, but they believe they need to abstain for whatever reasons. Maybe they have a strained relationship that they can't repair before they're about to participate in communion. Maybe it's better for them to, to, to sit that one out. Although I would encourage them to really, hey, what do we need to do to get that relationship reconciled or whatever? We need to incorporate that group. There might be some that are legitimately abstaining, and we don't want to force them to do that. But that should be few and far between. There might be some that need to be left out of it. Obviously, unbelievers. We don't give them the elements and say, enjoy what you don't know. Bring judgment on yourself and on me for giving it to you. We are to discern not just our own needs during communion, but the needs of the whole body here at RHC and make sure that everyone is taken care of physically and spiritually. Not just physically that they have the elements, but that they're in a good place with the Lord. Let's move to the third instruction. C, judge yourselves. Judge yourselves. Perfect. Good job on the slides back there, Chrissy. Verses 31 to 32 he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul tells the Corinthians that if they had judged themselves before taking the bread and cup, they would not have experienced judgment from the Lord. And we, we saw it back in verse 30, the weakness, the illness, and the death. It's so funny when 
these things happen in our own congregations, talking about weakness, illness, and death, we always ascribe them to uh, some kind of illness or ailment or whatever. And uh, have we ever stopped to think that maybe somebody that, uh, that's suffering here is under the penalty and discipline of the Lord and that maybe we need to deal with them more spiritually rather than just trying to meet physical needs because they're struggling through cancer? Or are we under the impression that God would never, ever, ever strike somebody with something like that because we're in an era of grace and he just would never do that? Because somehow he's changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's got a better attitude now in Christ. We're always ascribing some kind of illness to, to something physical. We don't ever stop to think that I wonder if Fred, I have to come up, I'm looking around, make sure I don't say anyone in here. I'm like, how did he know I have that? That Fred is, is okay with the Lord. It is thoroughly possible for God to allow this to happen as a discipline. We always just say, well, it's just natural causes. I mean, Kelly and I were laughing about this years ago. They're always talking about it in the papers and stuff, you know, that, you know, Fred died of natural causes. It's like, what, what does that mean? What is dying of natural causes? A heart attack? Cancer is not a natural cause. I think that's what we think. But, you know, a heart attack, that's like natural causes. All, everything that causes death is an unnatural sin-induced cause. We're not supposed to die. So I don't know if we actually die from natural causes. We die because sinners die. It's a judgment. So maybe we should think a little bit more seriously about those who get ill. And, and just, we don't want to go around and say, I know you're in sin, that's why you've been blighted with cancer. I mean, okay, if that's you, please leave now. But what I'm saying is we make sure... Part of communion, right, is evaluating, discerning the body. Let's make sure that people in the body are okay. Because if somebody has hidden sin in their life, who knows? We need to help them bring that out and confess that, bring it into the light. And that was a side thought. The Greek word for judged at the beginning of verse 31 is, is diakrino. And it really just means to self-evaluate. It's used several times. Paul uses crino and diacrino several times in this text. I like the HCSB. That's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, apparently, Dave did not know that translation. He's like, what is that, the Holy Koran Sabramic? I mean, he didn't even know what it was, but it's, the, it's actually a very good translation, by the way. It's really cool because it's partly dynamic equivalent and partly literal. So in the places where the scripture is very hard to understand, it switches to like NIV. And it gives you sentencing that's meant to convey thought. And then in places where it's not as hard to understand, it's ESV literal. So it's actually a really handy translation. It's kind of cool. And it does an awesome rendering of this, of this verse, verse uh, 31. Amazing. It reads, if we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. I mean, that's just such a perfect rendering of what Paul is saying there in 31. Now, some say that Paul was referring to final judgment, literally a loss of salvation here. Like as if you don't handle communion properly and you abuse it, whether intentionally or not, no matter what, it's such a serious sacrament that you'll lose your salvation if you don't do it right. There are quite a few that have that view. 
This is like a final kind of judgment. But diacrino in this context doesn't refer to final judgment. It's the judgment of divine discipline, not divine damnation. There's a huge difference. Look at verse 32. Come on, what does Paul say? He gives a commentary on what he said in verse 31. He explains that this does not have to do with you losing your salvation. This is what's so amazing to me about men in the church or whatever you want to call them who read verse 31 and say, look, you can use your, lose your salvation. And in verse 32, it says, guess what? You can't lose your salvation. I just don't understand the way they think. I guess they don't think. Verse 32, Paul describes what happens when a disobedient believer falls under divine judgment. He or she is disciplined, underline the word, so that they may not be condemned along with the world. J. Mack has a tremendous quote at this point. He says, God sends individual chastening to push offenders back toward righteous behavior and sends death to some in the church to encourage those who remain to choose holiness rather than sin. You saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. The whole church was filled with fear when they were struck dead. The church decided then, maybe we should be holy. That's the point. He says, even if the Lord were to strike us dead for profaning his table, it would be to discipline us, to keep us from being condemned along with the world. Since there is no condemnation, I used all caps like Dave has been lately, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, messing up communion cannot damn a believer to hell. No condemnation means no condemnation. It's final. Judgment has been rendered. My people shall not be condemned and consigned to hell. Well, I think in verse 31, it's a thing you can lose your salvation. Oh, yeah, maybe you're not a Christian. No sin, whether great or small, nothing, not even us, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 to 39. I love that text because it follows how he foreknew us and foreloved us and chose us and predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be glorified. He says all these things about our salvation, how sure it is. Then he says at the end of chapter 8, nothing can take it away. Not even principalities, which are more powerful than us. God does, however, judge in discipline his people for their sins because he chastens those whom he loves. Hebrews 12, 6. And yet we can't avoid his judgments if we will do as Paul instructs in the Greek. In the English, it sounds like this. Judge ourselves truly. How do we do that? What did we just talk about? Self-examination. You're judging yourself by self-examining. You're, 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 you're comparing your life, your inner life, and your outer life to God's standards and word. You're making judgments about where you're at and what kind of sin you have in your life, as well as discerning the body, because that's a judgment. It's not, you're not passing judgment on the body, but you're making judgments concerning the body in terms of its welfare and needs. So self-examination, discerning the body, especially at communion, that's how you avoid the Lord's disciplinary judgment. If you will just take the time to slow down 
get off your dumb phone and spend some time with the Lord and self-examine and make sure that the body around you is okay, you can avoid it. That's what it takes. And I'm saying this to myself because I'm like this all the time too. <sighs> we can avoid his judgments if we will judge ourselves truly. We just take the time to do it. Self-examination, discerning the body, especially at communion. Communion is so awesome. It reminds us to do this. We're approaching it. This is what we ought to be thinking about. But of course, we should not be harboring sin no matter what. Fourth instruction. Fourth instruction. D, don't rush. Verse 33. This is the one that just jackhammered me into oblivion. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Stop. Ugh. On the 14th of last month, we learned that the wealthy Corinthians only cared about themselves. They were gobbling up all the bread and wine, and they were doing it in before the communion service, and even worse, during it in front of the impoverished, famished believers, verses 21 to 22. This is just horrible. And what Paul is saying now is, brothers, you better wait for one another so that they can participate. Slow down. Don't rush. Why are you in a hurry? And this is just, for me personally, just such a tremendous reminder because I think it's easy for us to see communion as just another part of our liturgy. I've already kind of pointed to that, that we just need to hurry up and get through so that we can get to the next part of our liturgy and then the next part of our liturgy. And when I say liturgy, I'm just talking about the components of our worship service. You got a song that's part of your liturgy. You got another song that's part of your liturgy. You got a sermon that's part of your liturgy. You got announcements. That's a weird part of your liturgy. You got benediction, call to worship. These are all components or facets of our liturgy. Communion, part of our liturgy. And my conviction is that with all these things that we should be doing, we just got to hurry up and get through each of these things. And, and if communion's on deck for that Sunday, it's just another thing that we need to get through so we can get to the end. And by that time, our stomach's going, and we need to go have our jumbo jack or taco salad. Daryl's the taco salad master back there. And I've been with him. It's good stuff. But this is the way that we think about this. But let me ask you this question here. How can we possibly thoroughly examine, confess our sins, discern the body and its needs, remember what Jesus did, celebrate what he did, his person and work? How can we do all of this on a Sunday morning with all of these other liturgical components? How can we do that without rushing? How? You see, I'm at a point now where I'm thinking about just flat out removing communion from our Sunday services because I don't want to give it only eight minutes because I don't think that we can handle it properly with such a short amount of time and with all of the other liturgical components that we need to pay attention to. I'm thinking maybe we should move it to a Sunday night and have a communion service 
It doesn't have to be super long, but it needs to be long enough to where we can actually do a real self-evaluation and make sure that we're all connected and make sure everyone's okay, make sure we spend adequate time confessing our sin, reading through the text. Some of you are probably thinking, great, another thing I have to go to. Don't think like that. I'm sorry if I'm convicted. We just spent three weeks talking about this subject. If you're not convicted like I am, I don't know what to tell you. Eight minutes a month is what this gets. How can we possibly do it well? I was describing this to Rachel, and she's like, you better let the elders know first. This is where I plan to let them know. And I don't think there's an elder in this room. There's only a couple of them. There's one in training back there. I don't think there's one of them that would disagree with me. Amen? How can we do this the way that Paul is describing in such a short amount of time as just another liturgical component? In my humble opinion, which usually isn't worth much sometimes unless it's scriptural, and I think it is in this case, this ancient biblical celebration deserves more than eight minutes per month. You see, we've, we've really gotten this right when it comes to the sermon, because when we planted the church, we made a decision to spend adequate time in the Word, giving good exposition, good commentary on the Scripture. We didn't want to cut any corners when it came to that, and that's why the sermons are always an hour long. Sometimes they're a little shorter, and you people are like, I don't know what to do. I feel like I need to stay at church for another hour. But we've just decided that we would, the ministry of the Word would be a centerpiece of our liturgy. It would be the high part of our liturgy, higher than all the rest, because it's this, not because it's me. And, and, and we would spend adequate time in it. And I think that we all agreed with that. We all have. We've had some people leave the church through the years. They felt like the sermons were too long, and that's okay. I don't judge them. It's kind of lame, but, but I understand. Maybe but we haven't made this decision or thought about this with communion. In fact, I would say it was even worse before when we did it every week because it was just hung on the end of the sermon and no time to do anything. Just grab the stuff and drink and eat. This is telling us to do more with it. It's warning us. I think we're going to have to do something different with it if we're going to, if we desire to do it right. And I will begin a conversation with the elders. You've been warned, elders. Let's move to the fifth and final instruction. Okay, remember the last one was don't rush. Well, if it's just part of something we do every Sunday, we're probably going to have to rush it. E, satiate your physical thirst and hunger at home, verse 34. This is like the last thing he says to them here. He says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And he says something kind of mysterious here about the other things. I will give directions when I come. I think what he meant there was, because I didn't say much on that. I think what he meant there was that he has more to say about communion, but he's going to do it face to face. Communion is a feast. 
<laughs> Interestingly, by our standards for feasts, it's a feast that provides the least amount of sustenance, right? You get a little tiny portion of bread and a half of a shot glass of juice or wine at some churches. If you're Presby, it's wine. Maybe we should make the switch, I don't know. But it's very little in terms of meal components. Highly impactful and spiritual component though. But it is a feast nonetheless, right? And yet it was never intended to satiate our physical thirst and hunger. Never. It was, it was never supposed to be a potluck. And that's why in MacArthur's commentary, he talks about not just communion here, which is the only thing that Paul talks about, but he also talks about something else that churches used to do, and it's called the love feast, where they would come together and eat and feast together and all that. So he kind of switches between love feast and communion in his commentary, which is a little confusing. I think Paul's just talking about communion. And I think what happened was the Corinthians had turned it into a kind of a potluck and were excluding people and really just eating their own stuff that they brought. And it was just never intended to be a meal where you would come. It's like, you know, it's, it's not golden corral. It's something that you come to and you eat very little, but what you eat has massive spiritual significance. It is not a physical feast. It is a spiritual feast. You understand what I'm saying? Physical feasting, Paul says, should be done at home. If you have a communion service coming up, and I think they had theirs probably on Sunday nights, the Corinthian church did, I think they did them separate from their services like I'd like to start doing, but I think that, you know, maybe they were doing it right after dinner time, but people were treating it like dinner time and then bringing all the food they prepared that day to it and then grubbing out and eating and then mingling in the idea of love feast with communion. And it should have just been you come and you participate with very little food with high spiritual impact. So it is a spiritual feast where God aims to nourish his people spiritually, not physically. And Corinthians totally had this backwards, a retreating communion like a typical Greco-Roman feast where everyone or where every class of people, high class, middle class, low class, whatever you want to call it, I don't believe in classes, but they had classes. They just broke into their groups and ate all the stuff they brought. And yet the Corinthians did not refrain or stop calling it the Lord's Supper. And Paul says in the previous two sections ago, it's not the Lord's Supper that you celebrate, it's your supper, like what you do at home. You're turning what you do at home into the Lord's Supper. And that's why you're weak and ill. And some of you have even died. You're not supposed to turn it into Golden Corral. Paul is saying, I want you, or he says, if you want to avoid judgment, do not come to communion to satiate your physical thirst and hunger. That's not the purpose of communion. Eat and drink at home. Get that out of the way before you come. And then when you come, be nourished spiritually. That's what he's saying. Charles Hodge has an amazing commentary on this text right here. He wrote, the two great evils connected with the observance of the Lord's Supper at Corinth were, first, that it was not a communion. One took his supper before another, and secondly, that they came to the Lord's table to satiate their hunger. That is, they made it an ordinary meal. He says, they thus sinned against their brethren, and they sinned against Christ. 
in the conclusion, therefore, of the whole discussion, Paul exhorts them to correct these evils, to wait for each other and to make it a joint service and to satisfy their hunger at home and come together only to commemorate the Lord's death. That is the best summary of this text. And that's why I picked it. Hodge for the win, 